0: Our scripture reading this morning is in the book of Numbers. Uh, it's printed out in your bulletin, but it could be really helpful to have that black Bible uh, opened up. So there's some of those scattered about the, the chairs, so you can either grab one, or there's maybe more in the in the foyer. You'll be able to follow along anyway. If you have the black Bible, it's one thirteen, uh, the passage, page one thirteen, the passage we're looking at, Numbers chapter five. Uh, we've been studying the book of Numbers these past few weeks. Uh, on Sunday mornings, uh, looking at that period of time when God has his people in the wilderness. Uh, in the beginning, we've seen the beginning chapters of Numbers, it's all about that that camp that God has his people in. Right, They've been delivered out of Egypt, but they're not yet settled in the promised land, and in the wilderness, and so far in Numbers, God's really put attention on uh, the encampment of his people. And we've seen that the big theme is... God is dwelling among his people. That just as God's people are, are in tents around there in the, in the very middle of the camp, the glorious tent of God, the tabernacle, and the glory presence of God, uh, they're dwelling with them. It's this great blessing, this in great miracle as God uh, displays his great... Uh, Commitment to his own, to his people, to be their God. And they, his people, God dwelling among them in his glory. Which is an enormous gift, but it also raises big problems. Because he is a holy God, so what happens when the people are not so holy? And Numbers 5 in particular gets at three different situations uh, where there's unholiness in God's holy camp. And how to deal with it. We talked about two of these situations two weeks ago, and we're, we're circling back to catch the last one this week. Uh, and, um, and we're going to read from the from, uh, beginning of verse 11. We won't read the, the whole rest of the section. We'll read uh, through about 23, 22. Uh, you'll start to get the idea, and we can explain the rest. Uh, so again, you're thinking, camp, God in the middle, holy God. Uh, here's this third situation that God addresses uh, let's, let's give attention to God's word. Numbers 5, beginning of verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, uh, since she was not taken in the act, and if this, the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, though she, has not, uh, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it, and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take some holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hands the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, Uh, And some man other than your husband has lain with you. Uh, Then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen and Amen. Amen. Pause the reading of God's word. There, yeah, let's let's uh, let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you give us great wisdom and insight and understanding, and show us the the good things that you have done for your people. Uh, we do pray in Jesus' name, Amen. So, when it comes to Lord's Supper sermons, this is probably the oddest one you're ever going to hear. <laughs> And if you're wondering, no, this is not scheduled to be a Valentine's Day sermon. <laughs> That's a coincidence. Not a coincidence, though, that we're doing it during the Lord's Supper. That I did schedule intentionally. I hope we'll figure out why. But yes, very, very odd. Uh, but I think we've seen, if you've been here in our numbers study, I think you've seen that the, the odd s- details of the Old Covenant can actually be extremely valuable. Valuable, we've said again and again, not because God's calling us now to repeat it, right? This isn't a go-and-do-likewise message, Uh, but but it's valuable because what God was doing with his people under the Old Covenant was preparing the way, was through types and shadows and pictures, uh, preparing the way for the fullness that comes in Jesus. The very fullness that, that we're going to get a picture of in the Lord's Supper this morning. And so what we have in, in the midst of the oddness is very vivid pictures, sermon illustrations, object lessons that we don't try to copy, but we can learn from. And sometimes the, the oddness makes it all the more vivid, and I I pray that that's the case here. But we got to kind of walk through some of the weirdness to try to understand what God is doing. So we're going to try to approach it this way. You see the outline there in your bulletin on page four, uh, 3. We're going to talk about the problem, the procedure, and the provision. So first of all, the, the problem. And as we've mentioned, it's in the context of a series of problems. Uh, the main theme is unholiness in God's holy camp. Right? The whole glorious good news, a holy God is dwelling right among his people. But what happens uh, if this holy God, who is, can, cannot be near unholiness because of his, his purity and his majesty, what happens when there's unholiness in God's holy camp? Uh, and chapter 5 gets at, f- at three different situations. We looked at two. Uh, A couple weeks ago, what happens when there is ceremonial uncleanness? You touch a dead body or got leprosy in your skin. In the old covenant ceremonial world, there's unholiness in God's holy camp. God talks about how to deal with that. Verses 5 to 10 was all about when one Israelite uh, defrauds and steals from another. Uh, Unholiness in the camp. How do you make restitution offerings so that that is dealt with? And here we come to this third possibility of unholiness in God's holy camp. And it is marital unfaithfulness, what happens when adultery is present in God's holy camp? Although actually, uh, as you probably picked up, it's the the suspicion of adultery, the possibility of adultery. Uh, Very specifically, what happens when uh, a husband suspects his wife was unfaithful, uh, but there's not certainty. There was, there was no eyewitnesses, so it's a, it's a suspicion, it's not a, it's not a certainty. Well, th- this is a big deal, because we're in God's camp, these are God's people, and so they're called to be holy like he is holy, uh, so if she is indeed guilty, then there's unholiness in God's holy presence, uh, and that has to be dealt with. Uh, so part of the, the, the details here are discovering the truth so that the unholiness can be, can be addressed and can be dealt with. Okay, at this point, you you might be wondering, okay, husband suspects wife. Is there like a a chapter 6, chapter 7 where you get the reverse procedure? You know, what happens if a wife suspects her husband? There isn't. Which brings up a good follow-up question. How come there's not this opposite uh, procedure? That seems a little odd. The answer? I'm not quite sure. But though, actually, I think we do get some important hints, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get there. But first, let's let let's try to, try to understand this. Saying, first, uh, by way of background, about just the law in general, and God's commandments in general. Uh, because God is quite clear uh, throughout his word, and in the Old Testament law in particular, uh, that husbands are to be every bit as faithful to their wives as wives are to their husbands. Uh, right? So we could turn to Leviticus 20, and we can see there where there's the case of actual eyewitnesses, and it doesn't matter whether it's the wife or whether it's the husband. If they're, if they're guilty, actually the penalty is death for adultery. So every bit as demanding of, of absolute faithfulness. Uh, in fact, if you went to the New Testament, you could probably make the argument that God actually ups the ante on husbands, uh, because there it's revealed that they are to be a picture of Christ, Uh, to their wives. And so you could rightly argue that that their headship requires them to lead the way in faithfulness. So so we shouldn't get from this that God somehow has a different standard uh, for uh, a lesser standard for husbands or somehow we could buy into this, oh, well, boys will be boys. No. Okay, so back to Numbers 5. Old Testament world, what do you do? First of all, just with this The problem? Well, we certainly can take away at minimum this. Uh, Sexual sin is a big deal to God. It's not everything this passage has to say, we'll get there. But but at minimum, you you get that reminder this this is a a big deal. That God created this this beautiful gift uh, for His people uh, to enjoy, and He created it for a purpose in a particular context. And so to misuse the gift, Uh, outside of that created context is is an offense against the one who gave the gift. Uh, The gift of sexuality designed for a covenant marriage between husband and wife uh, that to misuse it in any way whether it's outside of marriage or unfaithfulness within uh, is is offensive to God, right? So the the, the encouragement, faithfulness within marriage abstinence outside of it uh, yes Uh, This is a big deal to God. But there is something bigger. And we've seen that throughout Numbers, that God is painting these pictures uh, that remind us of of bigger things in his plan. And that is most definitely the case when it comes to marriage. Throughout the scriptures, marriage uh, is presented as this created reflection of the bigger, more ultimate relationship between God and his people. That God's people are, are the bride. And, and God himself, the, the husband, the bridegroom. Uh, and God sets his love on his people. He, he binds himself to his people. He even he even takes covenant marriage vows. Right? God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And he calls his bride to be to be faithful. Right? You shall have no other gods before me. You're, you, people of God, are to be faithful. No other gods. You, you shall not run after trust in the nations or, or run after the ways of, of the world, right? Spiritual faithfulness to this covenant union, this, this spiritual marriage union. And in, in this ultimate relationship, uh, the big question is not, will the husband be faithful? Right? Because here we're talking about God, and there's no question there. God is faithful to his people. Always has been, always will be. So the big question is not whether the husband is faithful. The big question in this ultimate marriage is, will the wife be faithful? Right? And here, right, male and female, right, you and me, uh, are, are this, are this bride, this wife. Uh, it's the real question: is will will we be faithful? Will God's people Israel be faithful? Uh, and and of course, the the problem you might know uh, is that God's people are not faithful. Uh, and that's what gets presented again and again through the Old Testament. Even using this, this marriage image, you go to the, go to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, right? The whole setup of Hosea as he's told to, to marry this unfaithful wife, uh, Gomer, right? The whole picture there that's being presented is God in this, in this covenant marriage type relationship with his people, but the people have not been faithful. Uh, again and again, there's, Shown to have committed spiritual adultery, running after false gods instead of trusting in the true God, trusting in the nations following in their in their ways, uh, it's it's a problem. And of course, we can we can shine the mirror on ourselves. And right, the question, of course, uh, is, is not how faithful has God been to us. Uh, that's beyond question. The question is. Have we committed spiritual adultery? Have we been faithful to the Lord? And here, we're, we're no better than Israel. Uh, though God uh, has, has been faithful, we have too often given our hearts to, to other things, followed other gods, trusted in, in worthless idols. It's a problem. before a holy God, and unholy people, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Is there any good news for us? Well, there is. First, we've got to wrestle with this procedure that, that points us to where the good news is. So you have the problem suspected uh, in, in, in the, the human picture. Uh, husband and wife. Uh, husband suspects that maybe his wife has been unfaithful. So there's this procedure that's supposed to be, to be followed. Perhaps you kind of got the details. Husband and wife go to the priest. There at the tabernacle, remember the tabernacle, presence of God dwelling there. So, in essence, going before the Lord in his presence. uh, And there the wife brings a a sacrifice. And and then attention hones in on this oath that she makes and this cup that she drinks. So she's supposed to make this this oath, this this vow, essentially a prayer. And and the thrust is, uh, Lord, if I'm guilty, then let me be cursed. Um, if I'm not guilty, then may nothing happen. But if I'm guilty, let me be cursed. Uh, Specifically, the judgment coming in a kind of form of bodily uh, distress and disease, uh, the the judgment coming. And then she kind of acts this out with the drinking of this cup. This cup is handed to her. We're told it it has uh, holy water in it, which is just water that was taken from a from a basin that would be outside the tabernacle. It's holy because it's in God's presence. Along with, and you add a couple things to the cup. One of the things you add is dust from the tabernacle floor. Um, Add that. Uh, Of course, it's it's just dust. It's not going to inherently be harmful. Uh, What's the the point? Uh, Well, the point is you have holy things, right? Holy water in the presence of God. Holy dust because it's in the presence of God. Uh, and so if she is guilty unholy, then you have the situation uh, set up there, the problem demonstrated. Holy things in contact with unholy person, as she takes it in. So you start to see how it's, how it's being acted out. There's another thing that's added to the cup. Verse 23 says, The words of this curse had to be written down uh, and, and, then, and then washed off. Like, like the idea seems to be the ink washed into the cup. Uh, again, nothing inherently harmful. Uh, ancient inks were just natural material, so it might not taste great, but it's not going not gonna to harm. That's not the point. Uh, again, you see the picture, the words of the curse, and, and she's going to literally drink it. It's it's, it's taken in, uh, made, a, made a part of her. It's acting out this vow. If, uh, if I'm guilty, let me be cursed. But it is kind of weird, isn't it? We can can admit that. This is odd. Um, Maybe even more than odd, maybe it seems unsettling to you. Uh, And and a couple things that we can say that I think could be helpful. Uh, One is, as with all of Scripture, context is critical, right? So we're not talking about something that God says, here's what you're always to do in all times, go and do likewise, people of Emmanuel, no, um, it's a, a very specific temporary provision for a, uh, for a specific people, a specific people who are in a very traditional ancient culture. So we want to separate it a little bit from our modern notions and, and think within that context, here's what God is doing. And again, we'll see, there is a spiritual point, which is the big, the big take home. But even within the, the practical thing, I think if we think about it a little bit, we'll realize... God is, is actually not being cruel here. He's actually being wise uh, in, in a very specific way within the situation in that culture. Right? Because you have a a suspicion of, of a serious problem. But there's no certainty. So how does God set something up so that sin is taken seriously, but also at the same time, uh, a woman who is innocent and thus vulnerable is protected. How does God do both at the same time? And I think you see, though this procedure is odd, God is actually very wisely doing both. Um, Because, well, you could say, what are some of the alternatives in traditional ancient cultures, right, where a husband suspects his wife of being unfaithful? One of the popular alternatives in other cultures was the husband just handled it himself, Privately, whatever kind of vengeance he felt was justified, he just dealt with it and everybody just lived with it. That's awful. But very specifically here, God says, Among my people, no. No. He's not allowed to touch her. He's not allowed to, on suspicion, go forward. It's public because she's protected. And even the procedure itself. Is not inherently harmful, which was not the case in some vaguely similar procedures where the the, the thing you did was actually inherently dangerous. And you kind of waited for some miracle of the gods to bring about some kind of magical result. Not here. So here there's no presumption of guilt. Uh, There's and the procedure itself is not harmful, emphasizing the point uh, that, that God will be the judge. Uh, that that he will bring about any judgment in his sovereignty. Uh, that humans aren't to take it into their hands, and that innocent uh, are to be protected, and that's supposed to be clear to everybody. But again, uh, part of this is going back to the bigger picture. What is what is God doing in this in this bigger sermon illustration? Right, we don't copy it, but we're we're learning from it. Well, we said the bigger story is. God's relationship with his people. Uh, like like in, in this sermon illustration, there's, there's no question in this greater marriage uh, about the husband's faithfulness. The real question is, well, is the, is the bride faithful? Is, is, are God's people faithful? God's people, male and female, faithful to the Lord. And, and again and again, the picture uh, from scripture is God's people have been unfaithful. They haven't been faithful to them. And God, again and again in the Old Testament, brings this image of of a cup of judgment, a cup of bitterness uh, that's given to God's people to drink as the as the judgment for their unfaithfulness. I want to see a, just a real quick example where God uses Numbers five language? Uh, turn to Ezekiel twenty three, which is real quick. Ezekiel twenty three, seven eleven, page seven eleven. If you got the black Bible um so ezekiel 23 pretty graphic passage really uh god is talking both this is the time when there was a northern kingdom of israel southern kingdom of judah but they're all god's people so they're all the bride but he talks about them somewhat separately uh kind of as sisters Uh, but but the context is god's people as a whole were supposed to be faithful to him and the whole thing in Ezekiel 23 is God's people have not been faithful, and he's quite graphic about how, uh, how, that, how that looks. But then you get down to, say, verse 31. Talking to Judah, comparing with the sister, which is the northern kingdom of Israel. You have gone the way of your sister. Context, been maritally unfaithful. You've gone the way of your sister. Therefore, I give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You'll be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. So God says to his bride, the bride who's been unfaithful, who's gone off and, and uh, given themselves to foreign gods, worshipped idols, trusted in the nations, and God says, you're going to have to drink the cup of bitterness, the cup of judgment. Now, on, a, on an earthly level, uh, the context explains this is, this is foreign armies are going to come in and conquer Judah. The Babylonians are going to come in and exile God's people. But it's pictured in the prophets as the unfaithful spouse who has to drink a cup of bitterness, a cup of judgment. That's what God's unfaithful people in Israel deserved. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's a good picture of what we deserve. Because we said, that's our problem. We haven't been faithful. Male and female have not been faithful to a faithful God. Uh, and so, and so what what we deserve is is this cup of judgment being handed to us, a, a cup that's bitter in that it brings an eternal exile. That's what we deserve. and that's the that's the cup of judgment that that should be handed to us. So you set up that context and all of a sudden shines in that the real glory and surprise and unbelievable love. Of Jesus Christ in the gospel because it's to that very, uh, that very people that God then comes that very, that very people, that very spouse with the, the cup of judgment that they deserve to drink in their hand uh, that God himself comes grabs the cup from her and says, I'm going to drink it myself that's the work of Christ did you, did you catch in our scripture reading this morning uh, how in Matthew, Jesus, just moments before the cross, uh, twice refers to his going to the cross as a cup that he would have to drink. Yeah, it's this cup of judgment. It's not for his sin. Right? He's, the, he's the eternal son. He's been faithful to his, uh, to his people. right? The, the sin, the, the, the bitterness, the curse, uh, that's what we deserve. But here is, is that cup being taken from us and given to him. And he, even now, even before, moments before the cross, he senses the bitterness of it. And right, because it's the curse, it's the, the, what we deserve for our sin. And he goes. He drinks all of it. All of it. And you can, you see even this morning the, the, the pictures, the emblems of, of what that Cup cost him. Right? His body broken. Right, we talk about the the old covenant. There was the, the cup that brought about this, this bodily. Well, here, here, here's the ultimate. Christ was crucified. Body broken, his blood poured out. That's not what he deserves, that's what we deserve. But he took it, and he took it all completely. And it, right, you get a chance at the Lord's Supper to make that personal. Right? He did that for me. He did that for me. I, I should have downed that cup of judgment, that cup of bitterness, that cup of curse. I should have. I'm the unfaithful one. He took it for me. He drank all of it. So that there's there's none left for you to drink, believer. There's, there's no curse left. There's no bitterness left because it's gone. He drank it completely. Jesus does hand you a cup. Right, We'll get to see that this morning. But you remember what Paul calls it in First Corinthians ten? He calls uh, the cup of the Lord's Supper the cup of blessing that we bless. Yeah, is that a cup of bitterness? Is that a cup of curse? That's what you and I deserve. But there is none for that. There can be none for us because Jesus paid it all. And so the only cup He gives us, with with great love, as a as a as a true and faithful spouse, get hands to His bride, the cup that. It's a cup of blessing. Life, joy, uh, strength. Right? That's, the, that's the cup he gives us, right? Symbolized by this cup of the Lord's Supper and, and lived out through his, his spirit and his word and his, his life in us, that cup of blessing. You see, that's, that's the love of God for us. Undeserved uh, but, but shockingly wonderful, uh, amazing, uh, th- that we are, we're this loved, this cared for, this, this protected, uh, despite who we are and what we've done, that he's this committed to us. And, and you and I, we, we get that reminder here this morning. Uh, yeah, it had us walking through a Numbers passage that has a lot of oddness to it. Uh, but, but it was this picture of something bigger, greater, wonderful. So as 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 we come to the Lord's Supper, take in that picture this morning. Take in that that beauty of what of what Christ has done for us, for you. That the that the faithful One has given everything to rescue you and me. Uh, that he's 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 taken all the curse, uh, all the judgments. That there's none left. So that he he comes to us and it's this this cup of blessing that he hands to us. That that's. That's, if you're trusting in Christ, that's your story. That's who you are. Uh, and that's what you can rest in. So, so come and, and see that love more richly. Come and, and rest rest in that love more completely. Uh, and rejoice in that love even more fully this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you. We praise you. Because you are good. And we get to see this morning just how good you are. Thank you for your mercies. Thank you that we can rest in your saving, rescuing love. We pray that you would encourage each and every believer here this morning. We pray that if any don't know you, that they would, uh, they would be wooed by this, this unbelievable, uh, unearthly love, heavenly love. You draw them, Lord, we pray, with great thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.